I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to the show. I'm Laura Max Rose, and I am here for part two of the sex talk today. I am joined by Meryl Cohen. She is a licensed clinical social worker who spent 35 years working at Planned Parenthood as the vice president of education for Planned Parenthood Gulf Coast, which included Louisiana. She also taught sexuality at Baylor and Texas School of Public Health and U of H Graduate College of Social Work. Welcome to the show, Meryl. Good to be here. Today, I'm so excited to talk to you about how we talk to our children about sex. This is how I ended my last episode with Dr. Emily Jamia, who's at the same practice as you at Revive Therapy here in Houston. Um, And we just decided that it would be great to do an entire episode on this topic. Wonderful. I am one of many mothers who feels like I am walking around in the dark with no flashlight when it comes to this issue. Mm -hmm. I was certainly not raised with a large volume of knowledge around my own sexuality. And it was something that was not discussed in my family. And I know that I'm in the majority. So um, I think it's a gift to have parents who do speak to you candidly about sexuality and are able to explain it to you in a way that is helpful and productive. But that was definitely not my experience. And it's something that I, like many people, want to provide for my own children. So I'm so excited to have you here to be able to ask you all my questions. You authored a book several years ago, um, which seems like it'd be right up my alley and my husband's called Why Is This Sex Book Different From All Other Sex Books? A Parent's Guide to Embracing Sexuality Through Jewish Wisdom. I didn't even know you'd written this book until you came on here today. Why don't you talk to me a little bit about when we start talking to our children about sex, introducing them to books like these, and why that age is important. When? When we start talking to them, we start labeling their body parts they, and the environment, and that's when we start talking about sexuality. So if we look at the definitions of sexuality and sex, and actually don't say sex, talk about sexuality, which is includes uh, relationships and intimacy and... Um, identity, sexual identity, and all of these things. And then we say, when do we start talking about it? It's at the very beginning. So how do we treat people? How do we expect to be treated? How do we expect and how do we allow ourselves to be touched? So the way we tickle, the way we, uh, way we change diapers, the way we potty train, all of that is giving children um, a feeling of... Uh, ownership of their body and understanding of how their body works. So back to your real question, how do we talk about sex and when? So parents want to know, you know, when do we answer their question or wait until they ask the question, where do babies come from? How do babies get in? How do babies get out? Uh, Why does my penis get so hard? Why does it look like this? Why don't I have one? Uh, Can I take a bath with my sibling? When can I, should I stop? All the things And what do you do when the child is touching their own genitals? All the stuff that parents want to know, you address it when it's going on. And you do it not in one conversation that we wait to have, but in daily life as we look at everything around us that is so sexually laden. And we become 
um, aware of teachable moments and we become askable. So one of becoming askable, I love that. We become the safe parents, the place that they can go. Yes. Um, so one of the first moments, I guess, is when it, you're, we're teaching a child what their body parts are, mm-hmm. right? I was told my body parts were my PP and my tushy, right? So like, and most and they of my are. friends, and they are, but, um, now there's a very, very big emphasis on labeling our body parts mm-hmm. as what they're actually medically called. Yeah. And I can't be the only person who walks into that and thinks, how am I going to do this if I'm not even comfortable with this myself? Because this just is not how I was raised. Then I hear statistics about how knowing the actual names of all of our body parts actually prevents against sexual assault. It helps, you know, it helps children feel autonomous over their own bodies. So where do we begin? Mm -hmm. A little story. Uh, When my daughter, who's in her 40s, she was three and her nursery school called me at work and said your daughter fell off her trike and said she hurt her labia (laughs) and I said oh well then should I come to school and pick her up is she hurt and they said no she's actually fine and I said so you called because like why are you calling yeah right she said well she said labia I said yeah what would you like her to call it right so I had to talk with my daughter that night about what should we call it at school? You know, is it the down there, the private part? And we decided, no, we'll go with vagina, which it's not. And she knew that because you have labia, you have their part of the vulva, and then the inside is the Dr. vagina. Jamea. Yeah, it's not all a vagina, right? No. And so maybe that's a silly thing and maybe I'm ridiculous. But uh, so what do you label these parts? What can people handle when we're talking about this? But that's the vulva. But most people think they're doing great when they can get. If by I can with say the vagina. word vagina, like God, I'm going to just pat myself on the Absolutely. back. Absolutely, <laughs> Absolutely. So vagina, vagina. You practice. I remember when I first started teaching biology, which was my first gig, and I thought I was really cool. I knew how to say everything I thought, and then I was teaching seniors biology, and I had a picture of anatomy on the board and I was going to point to all these parts I couldn't say penis so you know it doesn't it's something you learn and you teach yourself and I just went in the room and said penis 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 penis, vagina vagina (laughs) vagina and now I talk about it as like turn the lights out and then your penis is your penis penis feels easier for me I can't explain why I think most agree that's though that's very laden with a lot of uh the way we view female sexuality and the baggage of like Absolutely. the way that we view female sexuality and the i think the one of the words in the english language that has the most uh synonyms is penis and then you get with vagina and it gets really ugly yeah they're all very ugly synonyms mm-hmm. yeah well that's very interesting so when our children start asking those questions but it's kind of like baby led weaning, right? Like when babies start eating solid foods, we yeah, follow nice. their lead. Right. So it's almost the same thing. Like when babies start asking the questions, mm-hmm. we're given this window of opportunity to start answering them right. in a way that's actually candid. But what about like, you know, my three and a half year old, like is so fascinated by the fact that she grew in my tummy, but like, how did I, like, how did I get in there? Like there's a lot. And my three-year-old goes to school and she starts like explaining all that or knowing all of that rather, rather than I'm like, crossing a line. I, what is the age where you feel like children are actually ready to understand Mm. what sex is and like really able to hear that? And do you think this is a two part question that there's something to maybe sharing? Is there a certain time where we can share it with them where they'll be less likely to be so blown away by it? Like if we're more open with them about sex throughout their lives, 
maybe they won't be so freaked out when they find out what sex actually is. That's a many part question. It is a many part question. (laughs) And I like it. So a five-year-old who wants to know how did I get in or how did I get out or where did I come from? Um, there's always that joke where you came from Chicago, but that's not what they're asking. They, they, you know, when they're asking and where a lot of people will say, you wait till they really ask it. Well, at five year old, the, the question you have to think, is this for information? Uh, is this for any kind of, what do they really want to know? And so you grew in my tummy. It takes a man and a woman and you grew, but did you? She grow in your tummy? No, she grew in your uterus. And I, I think a child who can say snuffleupagus and big bird and all of those things can say uterus. We have a very special, wonderful place that females have that men don't have, and that is our uterus, and that's where the baby grows, the fetus grows. So if we start explaining them things like that to them, like using the word uterus, then they start at least knowing like, okay, women and men are different. Right. It's not just a tummy. It's not just my belly. And like, then once we do have to explain to them what sex actually is, they're yeah. going to be more receptive Exactly. To if they have a vagina, they know a vagina, they know a uterus, they know a penis, then they know it takes a man and a woman, something about a man and a woman that makes a baby. Then you give them that sperm and an egg because we're all made some, you know, with so many different ways of fertilization now. We want to give them all these little, all the tools and labels so they'll understand. So what are some of the tools that we can use as parents to do this? There are some books that you like, some authors that you recommend. Will you share some of those with us? Yeah. So Roby Harris has wonderful books that you can start. Uh, The first one that I like is um, Who Has What, I believe is the name. Who Has What. Who Has What. So it's, it's all these pictures of boys and girls and what they are similar and how they are different. And I think they have a uterus in there too. And I think they have a uterus on a little uh, dog as well. So you have dogs and you have cats and you have people. What's what's the same and what's different? Very beautiful book, beautifully illustrated. And then her next book is uh, The Stark Didn't Bring You or something about the Stark. And that's then the next one, You're So Amazing, which really gets into how babies are made. And then later, for an eight- to nine-year-old, it's perfectly normal. So Roby Harris's books are are beautiful. And get them all in your library, and then they're all ready to go, and they help parents have the dialogue they need as well. I love that because I know I could certainly use those tools. But there's also online, if you go to uh, answer.rudgers.edu, which is Rudgers University, mm-hmm. their website's wonderful. It has a parent link and then has all the books, what books uh, for ages, you know, uh, broken down by ages. So I think that's a great website, the Rudgers University. It's called Answer. Okay. Uh, and you were talking to me before the show about how in the Netherlands, there's a completely different approach to sex. We talk about it much sooner. We're more open about the imagery of sex. It's not all dirty. It's not all like, do you feel like the re- the fact that we hold these images and these descriptions back from children in America has a direct correlation to the incredible use of pornography in this country that we're kind of in the closet about our own sexuality and that that contributes to problems later on? I think that in the Netherlands, they are very open. They don't tie it to religion or morality. They tie it to information. And when they made that decision as a uh, a real decision in the 60s, they said, wait, there's a 1960s. There's been this huge change, and we want to look at it. We don't want teen pregnancy. We don't want to have diseases. And so they said, we're going to be honest. And so they just took that uh, morality and separated it into medically accurate information. And so if we approach this 
not with fear, but with medically accurate information and age-appropriate information from the as the child grows, they get the information they need. I remember I did a lot of work in the Netherlands, not a lot, but I did some work in the Netherlands, and I did some interviews on the street with kids, teens, and I would ask them, well, do you use condoms? And say, of course we use condoms. So, you know, and uh, they had them in their, the girls had them in their wallets, and the boys had them in their wallets, and they they just talked about this, and I said, well, do you get drunk like in the United States? A lot of kids have their first uh, sexual experiences uh, under the influence. They said, no, it's too uh, pleasurable to do that. Why would we do that? It's a different approach. They're prepared to become sexually active. It's not so much how to say no, no, no. It's how to be prepared when you say yes. It's a completely different approach. That is so because I mean I think about here the way that we're all ra- we're all raised and probably even more so today is like about how to say no, how to like reject a, an advance that you don't want, mm-hmm. as opposed to like what about when you do? Exactly. <laughs> there are so many negative right. connotations that we're already like yeah. that we teach from, and so we start that very young because we do need to be able to say no, and we can do that as little children. How to say no to somebody that's touching you that you don't want to be touched, and how can parents say no? You don't have to hug every relative here, and no, you don't have to have let them all kiss you. You have the right to say no. I love that we're arriving at that place as a society where that is the norm. You know, when my three-year-old walks in somewhere and an adult tends to be a baby boomer, sorry, Meryl, but it's true, <laughs> really needs her to give them a hug. Exactly. Um, come on, like, I'm gonna, my feelings are going to be hurt if you don't hug me. Got it. And like being able to say, you know, Selma, if you don't want to give that person a hug, you don't have to, and they're going to be just fine. Why is like a 65-year-old person telling my kid that's three that they're responsible for their feelings? I just like can't, I can't wrap my head around that. But I know I was raised with that. And I was always told like, you got to give uncle crazy person a hug because you're going to hurt his feelings and you're somehow responsible for those. And that still goes on some, but I think it's more you know, appropriate touch. And uh, you, you want to even saying, well, if you don't want to hug, you could shake their hand or at least smile and say hello. You teach them manners, but that's their body and their body rights are really important. And so back to when do we start this conversation? The conversation's large. The conversation is about consent. It's about uh, relationships. It's about how you treat others and how they treat you. It's about agency if we have to use that word over and over and over but it starts very early the fact that this is your body and uh I do sex therapy and so on the other end uh I will see of of not talking in the family and not seeing role models with love and loving um we have to talk a lot about the difference between having sex and making love because in our society as young adults as well as teenagers learn about sex it's all about performance and in the media and certainly in porn it's about performance and uh, they use the word task sometimes adults in terms of get the task done or uh, and it's all about and the anxiety around your body and the task of pleasing one and getting pleasure it's, it's very confusing to a lot of people Yeah, I mean, I can understand that completely. So when you talk to people about those differences, the difference between sex and making love with someone, what are you what what do you talk about? I talk about sensuality, a lot about sensuality, that it's, what is the purpose of sex? And of course, a kid might ask that too. But adults, 
It's a good question for adults. What is the purpose of sex in a long-term relationship, in marriage? And for most, if they really look at it, it's for pleasure and connection. And when we're disconnected by the sex because we're so uh, angry or feeling rejected or not getting our needs met, it's not connecting. And so making love is about tenderness and touch and using our senses um, to embrace and to cuddle and to touch and to hold on to one another and also to feel the pleasure of sex uh, and all that that can bring. But so many, I mean, I think what we see constantly and what we expect of each other is this performance level Mm -hmm. thing that you're discussing. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I know to teach about toys and I know to teach about fantasy and role play and uh, all kinds of stuff. And if people want that, you know, great. But too many people think that is the answer to um, what we call discrepancy desire, where one has a very high desire, one has a low desire, their libido is low. I mean, come on, after you somebody's had a baby and you have a three-year-old running around the house and a one-year-old just getting out of... That's going to cause some discrepancy desire. Absolutely. And so uh, there, there could be pain, there still could be some pain, but there could be it's emotional pain. You're just tired. Well, let's also speak to the people maybe who haven't had babies who are listening, because I do have like a lot of listeners who actually don't have children, um, which is really exciting for me, because that means these topics are interesting, no matter where you are in your life. And maybe they're in a relationship or they're married and they don't have kids yet. But there is a desire discrepancy, as you said, there's not. Oh, yeah, there's, um, there's always a di- desire discrepancy, by the way, that's the norm. There, that is the norm. There are no two people that have the same frequency desire. I can feel a lot of people listening to that when you find when you when this goes on just sighing this sigh of relief because that is so the opposite of what we have been told oh, and it causes so many problems in relationships and in marriages you should want the same things that I do at the same time. It does, first of all many women not all and some men actually have responsive desire rather than spontaneous desire. And uh, there's a lot of written by Rosemary Bassoon, and there's a wonderful book out now called uh, Come As You Are that I think does a good job with that. But when we have responsive desire, it's a willingness, but where where we might not just be all turned on, I'm going to jump your bones, and this is what we need to do, and I want to do right now. It's rather than, wow, I remember that this is connecting for us, and this is important for us, and right now I don't really desire doing this. I've got baby poop on me or the dog poop on me or I've just come back from work. Life is on me. Life is on me. Yeah. And um, so then we think about a willingness rather than a spontaneous desire and willingness if, but I always say that the last orgasm, uh, actually foreplay starts after the last orgasm. How were you treated and how did you treat your partner? How did they talk to you and all of that? That's the foreplay that gets you to willingness the next time if you're not having spontaneous desire. So the way that you treat each other after sex and the way that you you show kindness to each other, that actually contributes to the willingness to want to have sex the next time. That's the real foreplay. That is so. I've never heard that before. That is really interesting. So... Back to our, back to where the journey begins, I guess. I, 
was recently talking to my husband about how I remember hearing getting like the sex talk from my mom. She actually told me twice. She forgot that she told me the first time. I guess it must have been that uncomfortable that like she blocked it out and then repeated herself like a month later. But that was really the only time that we ever talked about sex. And I remember how horribly uncomfortable I felt and I couldn't believe what was happening. And I didn't really ask any questions. And, and how I just, old were you? I think I was like six or seven Mm -hmm. um, and I got a book and she gave me this book. So I was at reading level. So maybe I was a little bit older and I just read the book by myself and like we never discussed it. And I said to him, you know, my kids aren't, they're not old enough to be having these kinds of conversations yet, but I can't imagine the dynamic being that way between us and them when these conversations do start because there's just like a different level, like there's just a different comfort level. Like I don't imagine my six or seven or eight year old being that shocked um, like by all of this, like being that blown away because I feel like by the time we get there, she will know all these other things about her body mm-hmm. and she will understand that like, this is not, I mean, maybe she's going to think, I mean, most kids that age are totally freaked out no matter which way you slice it, but um, that it's not going to be like, Oh my God, never talk to me about that again. And like this thing that's coming out of mommy's mouth is something she would have never said otherwise. I mean, I remember when my mom was telling me about what sex is just thinking like, why are these words coming out of your mouth? I've never heard these words come from you and I never want to hear them again. And that, you know, I aspire to get to the point where I'm at that age with my own kid that, that like, that's not so crazy for her to hear mommy speaking that way and that she's more comfortable with herself um, and not so embarrassed that we can maybe be in that conversation in a different kind of right. way. And that makes that you're askable. You've yeah, made it just such to be askable. I am, I'm the person you can come to. And we have to remember that kids at different ages ask questions to either shock us, uh, sometimes to seek permission, often to see, am I normal? Uh, and so if you just answer them as though they're asking for information, give medically accurate information, then you're pretty safe. Medically accurate information. That's age it. appropriate. I love it. Well, we're going to switch gears for a second and start talking about a very hot topic in our society right now, which is gender identity and sexual orientation. So okay. we are in a completely different place right now than we were when I was being raised. And that we're wasn't being that honest. long ago. We're being honest. Mm-hmm. And... Um, we're all of a sudden, we all of a sudden have access to so much information and so many different types of sexuality and sexual orientation. And there's a lot of confusion among many parents about when to introduce sexual orientation to their children. When, if my kid comes to me and expresses an interest in somebody of the opposite sex or the same sex, when can I start explaining this to them? What's the right way to do that? Um, you're looking at me like, well, <laughs> probably isn't a right way. But how do we introduce these topics? And can we also discuss, um, I guess what I like to call the myth of the fact that if you do expose it to them, it's somehow going to affect their sexual orientation. Oh, well, we have to understand that and believe that. And so some, that's, if we understand that our, our orientation, um, is not, well, it's, uh, orientation is different than gender. So if we're talking about gender identity, it's pretty much in there. Uh, and this child who questions their own identity at, at three or four and says, uh, I, don't, I don't like my penis, I'm, I want to wear dresses, and, and makes it very clear that their gender identity is opposite of their um, biology, we have to listen to the child. And that's parents need help with that, and schools need help, and some people are doing great jobs. You're talking about sexual orientation. Who do we love and who um, 
are we erotically drawn to? Mm -hmm. So in a child's world, it's more about, they don't understand eroticism. And they just know who people marry and who people date, maybe. So if you look around in your own world and are in their world, which is really important, at their school where someone has two mommies or two daddies, or in their own family where there's an uncle who's with a man, that we say they love each other like mommy and daddy love each other, if you are a man and a woman. So it's your own context. It's sort of helping a child put it in a loving relationship before they even know about sex. So it's the relationship that they love each other the same way mommy and daddy do. Um, I, I, does that make sense to yeah, you? Yeah, I, I, that does make sense to me. Going back to what you were saying, though, about the four-year-old who's saying, you know, I don't like my penis, I want to wear a dress. What's the difference between that four-year-old, though, and like the standard I mean my husband was I'm sure his sister put him in lipstick and dresses all the time for dress up sometimes he really enjoyed it he's definitely a a man and identifies as one so I think a lot of people are very worried about the blurred line between what's the difference between a kid who's just enjoying dress up I'm glad you mentioned that because oh dress up is great and uh kids want to look like their dad I mean they want to look at their mom and their sister and they wear tutus and um that's absolutely uh, to be expected right. and perfectly healthy to play roles and to yeah. dress up and want to wear lipstick and all those fun things. It's the little child who is um, in pain over their gender. And you can tell when a child is in if pain. If you're listening to a child, yes, it's very different than I want to dress up. Come on, let me wear a tutu and let me wear a dress and let me be like my sister. Then, uh, no, I'm a girl. I'm, I'm a girl. I always read articles written from the perspective of parents who have children who are transgender saying, you know, you don't understand, like, I am 100% certain that my child is transgender. And yes. even though they're six years old, like, trust me, I know. And then on the other side, there are the parents saying, like, I have a six-year-old boy who does things like that. And I'm not going to, like, you know, support him being a woman because he's just six and they don't even know what they want. But all the parents of children who are transgender say, like, trust me, and you're in this situation, you know that your kid is transgender. If that child, it it depends on what the child knows and at what stage that child knows. There are many transgender people who, um, they have some confusion about this, that, and the other, but they're, they're they're not so clear until a little later or much later. And then there's some children that are clear very early. So there's not one way with this. It's knowing your child and uh, and responding to them. Right. And but, uh, but we when we keep getting worse and worse with uh, gender re- revealing parties and everything's in pink and everything's in blue, it's once again making it get harder and harder for kids to just express, well, wait, this is who I am, and I don't, that's not who I am. We have to let kids express themselves to us. Yes. As they grow up. And I think as parents, we, it's like such a case, it's such a day to day. Like we have these expectations of what are, who our children are going to be regardless of their sexuality and their gender identity. Just we, and as we, as they grow, we come to understand they're, they're their own person. And it's so painful for us to do that because it can be, it's very painful, but then you have to look at yourself and how you, a big part of our identity and our tasks toward adolescence and, and adulthood is separating from parents and being who we are. 
And Gahil Gibran and the prophet talks about the parent being the bow and the child the arrow. And they will go off into the future into a place that we can't even know the questions to ask. And so we we have to get them ready for the world. You know, that first time they go to someone's home and that's and we're not going to be there or when we drop them off at preschool and then nurse and then kindergarten and the tears that we shed because it's loss. Yeah. And um but it's that's what parenting is. It is. It's all so many it's so there's so much joy and there's also so much grief and there's so much like oh my goodness, you know, you're you need this thing that I I'm not sure I know how to provide, but I'm going to do everything I can to do it, or I'm going to find somebody else who can. And, and it's our kids teach us so much more, I believe, honestly, in the yeah. end than we teach them. And so we listen to their questions, and we're be askable, and we look for teachable moments. And sexuality is the one of the wonderful places to get so much answered because it does include identity issues. It does include intimacy issues. It includes... Um, social justice issues and relationship issues it's if we get conversant in sexuality we can really answer a lot of those questions so you mentioned you are practice you're a practicing sex therapist now so yes. you see adults who went through they've already childhoods behind them and they've That's learned right. whatever they've already learned about sex and now they're in relationships for however long when they come to you is it often evident like anyone who's having an issue around sex or sexuality perhaps there is a connection to the way that we learn about sexuality as a society right now? Absolutely. I mean, we always take a history um, in some format. Mine is a little organic in the way I ask the questions, you know, how, what was the message from your parents? What, uh, how was sexuality discussed? What were some of the religious implications around sexuality? What were, did you ever have sex you didn't want or didn't invite? Um, What are some shameful moments for you around that? that you've never told anyone and then it starts pouring out and they're all it's all kind of related it's all related so the adults who do come to visit you you were mentioning like a concern about low sex drive is definitely a yeah a hot cha- topic yeah a changing libido <laughs> yeah. from the beginning when we're first in love and everything's hormones and dopamine and then six months to two years later you know when it used to be that oh he'd blow in my ear and I just it was just so great it just turned me on so great now I find it so damn irritating (laughs) and it's the same blowing in your ear so yeah we just see each other differently our we were coping and our our chemistry has changed and then we settle into is this the person that we want to spend time with? Is this a good friend? Is this somebody that's right for me? And then we settle into love. So, so much I think of what you do, it's kind of like debunking what people's expectations are around what their sex life should be. Because we see so much. I mean, we don't, we see the couple fall in love in the movies and have this really wild sex life, but we don't see what happens after. We don't see the work that it takes to make things work in that area of our lives. And most people think that if they have to, I mean, I was just talking to somebody the other day who said, I know so much, you know, she's been to so much therapy and she knows herself so well. And she's like, I know so much, but I still will, I still have in the back of my head that like, if things were right between me and my spouse, like it would just be easy. And like, I wouldn't have to work on sex. Like I wouldn't have to, like, it would just be instant and quick. And like, we would just know each other really well. And like, that's just not always how it's going to be. And 
I like that the impression that she's gotten from the movies is that like it's always perfect it's always wonderful it happens all the time people have sex every night even when they have four kids and she's just like I don't like this isn't this isn't reality and so many of us have been hurt so much by that oh absolutely messaging there's some people that have a lot of sex they don't want you know when I ask the question have you ever had sex you don't want and I've had women say I know you're probably asking about abuse, but I had it last night. (laughs) And I didn't know how to say no because I don't want to hurt his feelings, but I'm so tired. And that is a mistake because you learn to resent it. Yeah, that's And if you're not coming together because you both want to, to be able to say, can we just cuddle? I really want it skin to skin and touch and kiss. But I don't have, I don't want that. And after having children, you know, and you've got, if you're nursing and you've got uh, kids People All need o- your body for a need- lot of different things. Absolutely. Yeah. So these are things we discuss because what's really important is one of the people in this duo is feeling rejected and at not being able to say or, or really understand that what I'm asking of you is sex daily or three times a week or whenever. It's proved to me you love me. And the person saying, I'm tired doesn't realize how rejected the other person feels. So the conversation needs to be, no, I love you very much, and I want to touch you. I don't have the energy for this right now. But then again, there's all kinds of sexual behaviors, and that's why we talk it through. So many of us want to just, like, so many of our problems, I feel like, can be solved by just knowing how to communicate things. So one person interprets something as rejection, And the other person can just say, you know, that's not what I mean at all. I love you and I want to spend this time with you, but I'm absolutely wrecked right now. Mm -hmm. And then you make a date. Yeah, make a date. We were talking about that with Dr. Emily Jamia. Like we shouldn't be so weird about the idea of scheduling sex because that's what a date is. Right. right? And, <laughs> and this idea that it should be spontaneous. Well, on whose terms and what moment? Right. And right. to be able to, people want to feel wanted. They want to feel desired. Yeah. And, um, we do this thing, this dance, intimacy dance, where we push people away to keep them from coming too close because we are tired, rather than say, I really love you, and I really am turned on by you, and you are beautiful, but not, a, let's make a date for Saturday, or let's, you know, have a stay get vacation somewhere, you know, and not, not just every six months, but on a regular basis. Well, so you're Jewish because your book is about the Jew- a Jewish perspective, Jewish wisdom perspective on sex for right. how to explain sex to children. So my, so were my husband and I, and when we, we had two rabbis at our wedding, actually, it was extra kosher. One of them we went to, um, had three sessions with us before we got married. And the second session was about sex. Mm-hmm. And he's like, I know I've gotten really famous for like this sex talk that I apparently give because everyone's like, oh, you know, watch out for like the big the big sex talk you guys are going to get. And we actually like really enjoyed it because it was so, um, it gave us like, it was so many things that I never would have known otherwise. Um, because even though there's so much about sexuality in Judaism, it's not, it's still not talked about in Hebrew school. So we learned so much about, um, a Jewish perspective on sex. But one of the things that he talked about was like, when you're married, like get, like get ready for sex with your spouse. Like when you're, when you know you're going to have sex with your spouse, like take a shower and, you know, get like, get dressed up if you want to, that there's really something to like honoring that time. And like, I think 
I was talking about this with Dr. Jamia that a lot of women do feel like they need to get ready because they feel like I have milk and poop all over me and this isn't what I want to be doing. And the pressure of like spontaneous sex being like mm-hmm. what we need to be doing um, can really take all of the everything out of it for us because right. it's just another thing that we feel like we have to do. No, and, and that's sex is not something you should feel you have to do. It should be something that you both want to do at this moment in time and that's that's communicating that's communicating your feelings it's really really something that people don't have practice on no we don't i mean so much of what happens inside the bedroom that goes well means the stuff outside of the uh, stuff outside of the bedroom's going well the yeah, talking and, about touching base being on the same page and there's so many different uh, theologies the way people come into marriages some um that have been told you don't have sex before marriage, and I've had some quite a bit of sexual problems with people not understanding that if you just start um, by having intercourse, that is going to hurt, that there's a lot to learn, and we cannot diminish how important learning through pornography is, and that so many, I, I'd even ask men now, did you start watching pornography 11 or 12? It's ubiquitous, and so many say about 11 and 12. Because they've all watched it. It's yes. just a matter of when. Yes, not everyone, but most. And they have learned about sex. They have not learned about lo- making love. So you're saying it's important, like not important to do, but it's important to their perspective on what sex is because that was their first sex education? Not just first, but all through years and years and years of conditioning their body to respond to pornography as opposed to respond to a real human being and satisfy each other's needs and love each other. It's very different. Yeah. I mean, I have read a lot about how the, um, like the expectations that a lot of men go into sex having because of how they've basically been raised on pornography, um, can be extremely destructive. And like, it's all about learning just like what sex is basically all over again after seeing something completely different. That's completely unrealistic. Right. And so, you know, parents need to know about that and think about that. It's not that porn is a terrible thing, but it, if it is your way of, of being sexual in the world by yourself for a long, 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 long time, you've got to have another way of learning how do we love a real human being. You were saying to me before the show started that like sex with yourself is so much easier than sex with a spouse. So if oh. you've been raised on pornography, it's a whole new lesson to be like in a relationship or in a marriage because you've got one thing covered, but it's not the same. Oh, it's so much easier. Yeah. We don't talk about this at all, but like, I mean, even talking about it right now, I'm like, oh my goodness, I am so far out of my comfort zone. But <laughs> like so many people, no, and so it's many important. people have, I mean, I don't have any male children and I don't like have this experience yet. I mean, I might have one, but. Um, well, I remember telling like, my son, it was 12, 13, whatever I'd say, you know, and. I'd say that a woman is not a hole. She's whole. And if you, you can make a hole with your hand. Maybe that's a little far to go on the show. But <laughs> it was like, it's, you know, that it's very different. That teenage boys uh, learning about sex, they want to experience it. Right. So masturbation's an important outlet for them. It's a good outlet until they're ready to be with another person, to be with the whole person not just use that person. So however parents go about teaching that concept, I think it's huge. Well, previously we've gone about teaching it like 
this is not something you should ever do. And if you are, don't talk to anybody about it because in but some cultures are going to hell. Absolutely. Like it's uh, something that people, I mean, so many families have just said like, this is evil. This is bad. There's yeah. so many like myths about what's going to happen to you if you do it. And so like, and I like to say, check out your religion and see what it really says about it. And uh, you'll find that there are some that absolutely say you're not supposed to do that. But many are very open and saying that, masturbation is just a normal part of human development and we have i mean for girls and boys so not the way that it has been relayed so well when women come in and they are non-orgasmic the first thing i'm going to ask is do they do you even know how yeah well there's that like do you even know how your body works in that way well and have you have you tried to pleasure it yourself so that you can let your partner know right what he's supposed to be doing Mm -hmm. or she Know yourself first, as they say. Right. Or she. Awesome. Wonderful. Well, it was so great having you on the show, Meryl. And um, if anyone wants to find you or work with you, you are at Revive Therapy. Uh-huh. Revivetherapy.com. Um, awesome. Here in Houston in the Montrose area. Mm-hmm. And um, you have this book. Is this available on Amazon? It is. Wonderful. It's, again, called Why Is This Sex Book Different from All Other Sex Books? A Parent's Guide to Embracing Sexuality Through Jewish Wisdom by Meryl Cohen. Thank you again for coming on the show. And thank you all for listening. You can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose. I hope you'll subscribe and share this episode with your friends if you found it useful. And we'll see you next Tuesday. Bye. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time. Mm-hmm.